Well, good morning. Wes and I had a bit of a disagreement here this last week. Uh, I make the slides generally for the graphics that you see, and when we were talking about this uh, this dealing with drama conflict series, he had had put some goats butting heads and uh, in a, in a little word document, and uh, I did the graphics and didn't put the goats on there, and he was a little offended by that. He said, "You didn't like my goats." I said, "No, I like this better." Well, he tells me this morning that him and his brother, he can remember back to uh, the two of them fighting over which color of Rock'em Sock'em robots they got to have. So. They both like the blue. Yeah, it's a conflict. It's a conflict, right? It happens. It happens. Christians have conflict. We live in a world where there is conflict. I don't think I have to tell you that. If you've been watching the news at all, it's that time of year again. Seems like we just did this. It's the the political season. Debates are being televised. Twitter is as woke as ever. Do you guys know what that word means? Woke. That's what all the kids are saying these days. It's like you're awakening to social justice issues and you're tweeting your little fingers off because you're upset about something. And so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> the media says that we're more divided as a nation than we have ever been, which personally I will respectfully disagree I remember a time, at least I've read about it, where we actually killed one another in uh, the Civil War. Seems like that was maybe a little bit more divided than we've ever been, but tensions are high, to be sure. The political discourse in our country is total garbage. Social media doesn't seem to help in this. It seems like, and this is my opinion, you can agree with me or not, that's fine, it's my opinion. It seems to me that people are more concerned at talking at one another than talking with one another. That's a problem. That's a problem. And it's not just in the political scene in America. It's all over. It's not just in politics. Conflict and drama are everywhere. They're everywhere. It's kind of the status quo across the world. Am I right? I think so. We got conflicts, drama, division over race, right? Black and white versus brown. We've got conflict in Africa, the Hutus versus the Tutsis, if you know anything about that. Arabs versus Jews. Russians versus Americans. I've already discussed politics. Capitalist versus communist or socialism as they're calling it these days. Same thing in my opinion. <laughs> Left versus right. There's conflict over worldview. Some insist there's no truth but your truth, right? Live your truth. That's what Hollywood tells us. And then the other side of that is the absolute truth, people. The facts don't care about your feelings. You got that fight. You got the atheist versus the theist. And then in theism, you got Catholics versus Protestants, Muslims versus Christians versus Hindus versus Buddhists. Now, some of that might not feel like it's, it's home. It's kind of out there. So let's bring it home a little bit. We got conflict over drama, right? Male versus female. Husband versus wife. We've got conflict and drama in our local city. The city council versus the taxpayer. I don't know if you read some of the news going on about that. There's a little bit of drama going on right now, a little bit of conflict. We got parents versus teachers versus school boards versus teachers versus parents. (laughs) We've got friends pinned against one another. Maybe your present love interest versus your ex. Some drama there, some conflict. Neighbors versus neighbors. Bosses versus employees. And reverse that. Co-workers versus one another. Brothers versus sisters versus cousins. Nephews versus uncles. Your mother-in-law 
against everyone. (laughs) Everywhere we look, there is drama and conflict. So, what's a Christian to do? Well, that is the point of this series. Conflict and drama seem to be an unavoidable part of living in a world that is fallen far from what God has designed it to be. Because there is sin in your heart and in mine and in everyone else's heart, conflict is inevitable. It's unavoidable. Sin always leads to conflict. Conflict with God, conflict with one another, but conflict itself is not necessarily sinful. Don't miss this. Conflict and drama is not necessarily sinful. How you and I respond to it is the issue. That is what you and I will be judged on by God. How we deal with the drama and conflict that meets us in our lives. And we can deal with it in one of two ways. We can deal with conflict in a life-giving way that, uh, that, that, that displays what Jesus did for us on the cross, that displays the love of God. Or we can deal with conflict and drama in a way that is rebellious against God and really asserts our, our own self above all every, everyone else's interests. So put in that light, conflict is actually an opportunity. It's an opportunity to make disciples of Jesus. It's also an opportunity to evangelize other people with the love of Jesus. Conflict and drama are opportunities. They're opportunities for us to testify to who our God is, to what he's done for us, to show people what God is like. But only if we deal with drama in the way that Jesus did, in the way that he instructs us to. That's really the struggle. The struggle for the Christian is not to fall into the ways of the world when dealing with conflict. And that's what I want to look at with you from Romans 12 today. Romans 12, if you have your Bibles, you can open up. Romans 12 will be in the first two verses, and we'll skip down a couple and start in verses 14 and 25. We'll get to those a little later. First off, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, this is Paul writing to the Roman church, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I want to pause there. We're picking up in Romans, kind of in the middle of the book. It's actually closer to the end of the book. And I personally, I think I'm like most people, I really like Paul's letters at the end. Because that's where he gets kind of the, the, where the rubber meets the road. That's where he gets practical. He says, all right, here's what I want you to do. That's kind of how I think. Just tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. What do you want from me, God? Tell me how to live. And I'll do my best to do it. That's great. But man, do we miss a whole lot of richness if we skip over the beginning of Paul's letters. The beginning of Paul's letters talk about doctrine. They talk about doctrine. They tell us what we should believe about who Jesus is, what he's done for us, about who we are because of what he's done for us. So Paul says, believe this and you'll behave like this. So we can't ever skip over the doctrine. You can't just say as a Christian, don't tell me about all this theological stuff. Just tell me what to do. You can't ever do that because right doctrine compels and empowers right doing. Or to say it another way, right believing 
compels and empowers right behaving. So we can't ever skip over the foundational truths of Christianity. We have to start with what Jesus has done, with who he is, with who we are in light of what he's done. And if we get that, then the behavior, the doing will flow out of that. Church, this is why every Sunday, Wes and I really only have one message for you. We try and present it in different ways and fresh ways and new ways, but it's really only one message. It's about what Jesus has done for us. We call it the gospel. We try and present it new and fresh ways every Sunday because if you don't understand correctly who Jesus is and what he's done, nothing I say, nothing Wes says from the Bible will really matter to you all that much. You either won't care about it or you won't have the power within yourself to live it out. So Paul starts in Romans 12 and he says, Therefore, in view of God's mercy live like this. In view of God's mercy, live like this. So what exactly are the mercies of God we're supposed to keep in view here? Well, if you went through Romans 11 or, and, and the, the previous 11 chapters of Romans, you could read about those. I would encourage you to do so. But I want to try and give you a few metaphors to help you think about God's mercies in a new light. We can think of God's mercies like this. Jesus is a cosmic boss and we're his employees. To be honest with you, we're kind of rotten employees. We lied on our time cards. We stretched our breaks and our lunches. We whined and complained about how terrible of a boss Jesus was. We lied about his nature. We lied and said he was somehow holding out on us, cheating us out of what was rightfully ours. We raised our fist in rebellion stormed his office after we embezzled billions of dollars from him and we demanded that he turn over the keys of the business to us. And what does Jesus do? Well, he doesn't dismiss our wrongdoing or claim that we're in the right. He actually clearly tells us who we are. He condemns us as wicked workers. He's done nothing but treat us kindly He's done nothing but provide and care for us. But we treated him only with contempt and ungratefulness. But instead of doling out a swift judgment and casting us out of his presence like you and I would if we were the boss in this scenario, Jesus does something astounding. For the workers who realize their error, who fall on his mercy, as we wait in handcuffs or wait for handcuffs to be put on, Jesus moves towards us. He says, I'll forgive all your debts. I'll pay for it out of my own bank account with my own money. And what's more, he says, I'll serve the sentence that you deserve. I'll go to jail on your behalf. I'll give you a promotion in my company. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, or how about this? In view of God's mercies, we think of Jesus like a husband and he the wife. This is scriptural. It's a metaphor we get in the Bible. Ephesians 5 is, prop, uh, is a good example of it. Jesus has been an amazing husband. He spoke tenderly to us. He served us with love and grace. He cared for us and provided for us and protected us. We were poor and ugly and alone. Ezekiel 16 talks about this. No one wanted us. There was nothing in us that was attractive but God loved us. He made us his. 
He gave us only good things in abundance. And his love made us beautiful. His love made us the envy of all the other wives. He treated us kindly. And we took his good gifts, the gifts that he gave to us, and we used them to buy other lovers. We became worse than a prostitute who charges for sex. We took the good gifts that God gave us and we used it to buy other lovers for ourselves. Our lusts were never satisfied. Our bed was always open to any stranger, never to our husband. When we got pregnant with other men's children, we killed them. We sacrificed them on the altar of our own freedom and our own sexual liberation. Not just once, but thousands of times. We slept around with anyone and everyone who was willing. We slandered his name to our lovers. We spoke wrongly about him. We lied about him. We cheated on him. And what did Jesus do? He didn't divorce us, as would have been his right to do. He didn't kick us to the curb. Instead, he stayed in the relationship. He confronted us with our sin. Sure, he doesn't overlook it. He speaks clearly and lovingly to us. He lays out before us our wrongdoings. He tells us what we've done wrong. And just as we expect the hammer of judgment to fall, Jesus offers us the opportunity to renew our vows. Even after everything we've done, Jesus offers to take the, to take the offense on himself. To bear the shame of staying with, of staying loyal to an adulterous woman. He offers forgiveness by taking on the full weight of our wrongdoing upon himself in view of God's mercies. That's what Paul says. Or lastly, we can think of God's mercies like this. At school, we sat alone in the cafeteria because we came from a poor family. We only had one set of clothes. We wore them every day. We didn't have parents that loved us enough to teach us about hygiene, so we smelled. We had physical deformities. We weren't smart. There was nothing to commend us to others. We were not lovable. And while others were making fun of us, staring at us, or avoiding us, Jesus came and sat with us. He talked with us. He said we mattered, and we believed him because we, he treated us like we did. He made time for us. He gave us good gifts. He loved us better than any friend ever could have. And when people mocked us, Jesus defended us. He went to bat for us. He stood up for us. He fought for us. He made us feel loved and okay. And we began to feel better about ourselves. Because of Jesus' love, we began to become more attractive to others. The popular kids started to take notice we started to get invited to parties that we'd never been invited to before. We started to be asked to sit with the cool kids at lunch. But not Jesus. Only us. It went to our heads. We distanced ourselves from Jesus. We started to avoid him. We didn't want to be seen with him anymore. We remained kind to his face, but when others were around, we mocked him, just as they did. We told jokes at his expense. We stabbed him in the back. We lied about him. He treated us with love when we were most unlovable. And we returned the favor by disowning and deserting him. And how did Jesus respond? 
He did not cast us out of his presence. He acknowledged our disloyalty. He didn't cover it up. He called out our lack of faithfulness. He spoke the truth. We don't deserve to be called his friend. But instead of disowning us, he took the offense upon himself. And he did as he did for Peter, the man who disowned him in front of others three times. Well, Jesus needed him most. He extended the hand of friendship once again. He invited us back into fellowship with him despite our disloyalty. In this scenario, I think it's helpful to think about Judas. Those are character, right? Scumbag. That guy lived with Jesus for three years, served in Jesus' inner circle. What I wouldn't give to spend three years with Jesus on this earth. The questions that I would ask him to be taught by him personally. Jesus, Judas had all of that. And he sold him out for a bag of money. Sold him out for a bag of money. After Jesus loved and took care of him for three years, he befriended Judas. And Judas betrayed him. Church, that's our story. You and I are Judas. But God's mercy is available even to Judas. It is. You can read the account in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Judas comes and betrays his master, his friend, his God with a kiss, how does Jesus respond to him? He says, do what you came for, friend. He calls him friend. And I don't believe there's any sarcasm in Jesus' voice. I think the only thing in Jesus' voice is sorrow. In the moment of his betrayal, Jesus is still offering loyalty and friendship to Judas. Even in betrayal, Jesus is reaching out to Judas with the offer of friendship and fellowship. Therefore, in view of God's mercies, in view of God's mercies to you in Christ Jesus, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Do you see how Jesus dealt with conflict and drama in his life? Jesus did not fall prey to the patterns of this world. He did not seek to get even. He did not seek to defend himself. He did not fight to win. He didn't fight to make war. Jesus died to make peace. To make peace with his enemies. He fought to reconcile sinners back to himself. To restore relationships. How? By taking the pain and the hurt and the punishment upon himself. He assumed the cost of the wrongdoing. Jesus offered grace to those who deserved it least. He didn't cast us out of his presence. He didn't cast those who wronged him out of his presence. He extended the hand of friendship to them. He invited them to re-engage in fellowship with him. He didn't ignore the offense or pretend like it didn't happen. He called it out while also taking the hit required to restore the relationship. Now, is this how you and I deal with conflict and drama in our life? Therefore, in light of God's mercies, don't be conformed to the patterns of the world. In view of God's mercies, to you in Jesus, you instead live like Paul says in verse 14. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, even your enemies. Mourn with those who mourn, even your enemies. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If you go back to the original Greek, everyone means everyone. Do not take revenge. My dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Church, the world fights to win. To win arguments, to win elections, to win war. The world fights to protect its own interests above all others. It's self-protective, self-promoting. The world is selfish. The world makes war and pretends at peace. The world is not committed to peace. Neither fakes peace or breaks peace. We are not to be conformed to the patterns of the world. We, the Christians, in view of God's mercy, are called To make peace. To make peace. We're called to pursue reconciliation at peace at our own personal expense. To pay the cost it costs to extend extend grace. It is awesome to receive grace because grace that is received is free and undeserved. It's expensive to extend grace to those who don't deserve it. How expensive? Well, it costs God, His one and only Son, who was innocent. Suffering, crucifixion at the hands of wicked men to purchase for you and me grace. Grace is costly. It's costly. Has this grace you've received in Jesus so gripped your heart in such a way that your first instinct is to pay the cost, however high, to be reconciled in your relationships with others? Matthew 5, if you go read that chapter, has a lot to say about this. Hard things to say about the cost it cost to be reconciled, to be peacemakers. Jesus tells us in that chapter to go above and beyond in making amends, to go beyond what is even required, what is even being asked for. In chapter 5 of Matthew, he says, if someone sues you for your shirt, Jesus says to give them your coat as well. The world hates their enemies and fights to conquer them. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, We are to love our enemies and pray for those who throw stones at us and mock us. Pray blessings for them, not curses. To serve them more. To love them, to move towards them in love. And as much as it depends upon us, we are to make peace. Now some of you might be thinking, Yeah, but Levi, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know my situation. You don't understand. What about justice? What about, what about? Look, the Bible's not naive. Jesus' words, not mine. He says, in this world, you will have trouble. Conflict is unavoidable. We will not be at peace with everyone. That's true. That's true. 
We're not going to be at peace with everyone. Jesus even said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring the sword, divide father and mother, brothers and sisters. We're not going to be at peace with everyone. But our heart's aim and goal should always be reconciliation, should always be the restoration of relationships. And I can hear some of you already thinking, so you just expect me, I'm just supposed to put myself out there over and over again at the hands of wicked people. I'm just supposed to be a doormat. I'm just supposed to get trampled by the wicked. Is that what you're asking me to do, pastor? Does that, is that what you want from me? Just keep putting myself out there just to be trampled all over again. Meek and mild. A doormat. No. That's not what I'm calling you to. And we're going to spend the next two weeks, the next two weeks, talking about healthy and appropriate boundaries. We're going to talk about the practicals of how we're supposed to proceed when peace is unavoidable. We will get to that. But today, today I want us to focus on and commit to being peacemakers. You see, I don't think most of us have a problem with being so committed to peace that we've become doormats. I think that most of us are far too quick to cut off relationships and cast those, of, those people who've hurt us out from our lives. It makes me think of a story. There's a man. He's deserted on a desert island. 20 years. There's a research vessel, comes across him, finds him. And they, they said, hey, well, we'd love to save you. Let's take you back into civilization. He's like, all right, let me go gather my things. So they go deeper into the jungle to where he's made a village. And they come upon three structures there. The first one is obviously his house. The other two are beautiful. So they ask him about the first one. What is this place? This must have taken you years to build. He said, it did. That's my church. It's the church where I attend. Wow, amazing. Well, what about this other one? It's equally as beautiful. That's the church I used to attend, he said. That's the church I used to attend. And we can laugh about that. It is funny. But hopefully you get my point. I don't think our problem is that we're so committed to peace and reconciliation that we're stupidly putting ourselves in harm's way. I don't think that's our problem. That could be a problem. And we'll deal with that in the next two messages. But I don't see that in the church a whole lot. Honestly, I think our problem is that we are far too quick to dispense with the peacemaking process. I don't think we're committed enough to peace. I think we cut and run at the first side of conflict. I don't think we stay put and work hard to foster peace, to be reconciled. I think we're really happy to point the finger at the other person and say, I will make peace in as much as it depends upon them. I don't think we realize that the peacemaking process depends upon us Far more. I think far too many of us fail to live in view of God's mercies and are therefore conformed to the patterns of the world more so than Jesus' rugged commitment to make peace even though it killed him. And church is to our shame. It tarnishes the gospel. That's really what's at stake here. Our testimony. See, everybody asks me, it's like, what's a good evangelistic approach. How do I share my faith? There are things that we can talk about, but do you want to know one of the most powerful apologetics for the gospel of Jesus is? If you commit to make peace in all your relationships, in as much as it depends upon you, if you commit to fight to make peace, to be reconciled, to be restored, where you choose not only to agree or to, to live 
tolerantly of another person, but where you move towards them in love, where you can genuinely rejoice with someone who's harmed you, where you can genuinely mourn with someone who's harmed you when they're mourning. If you live in harmony with one another. See, there's nothing outstanding about friends being nice to one another. Do you know what is outstanding? When we love our enemies, when we bless them and not curse them, when we serve them and go the extra mile, even though they definitely don't deserve it. See, Jesus said in Matthew 5, again, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. You see, few things display where you're from better than how, you're, how, how much you're committed to the peacemaking process. If you live your life in view of God's mercies and seek to make peace with your fellow man, people are going to take notice. When we don't just conform to the patterns of the world, but we live like Jesus, people are going to notice there is something about the way you and I go through life and work through our troubles, work through our disagreements with one another that will communicate to a watching world, you're not from here. Your dad must be from heaven. In the next two weeks, I'm going to talk about what this looks like more, how to deal with conflict, how to make peace with one another. But today, I really want to make abundantly clear that the only reason you and I can make peace, the only reason we have the power to do this, is because of Jesus and what he's done on our behalf in view of God's mercies to us. Unless we live in view of those, we'll never have the power or the strength to forgive people who wrong us. We just won't. We just won't. But if we do commit to this process and live in view of what Jesus has done for us, we will have an incredible testimony to the watching world that will communicate who our God is. It'll be attractive. To illustrate this, I want to close with uh, someone doing this. I want to show you a clip of someone who committed himself to, in the view of God's mercies, be a peacemaker like Jesus. This gentleman had every right to curse and not condemn, but instead he chose to offer grace and pursue reconciliation. The gentleman we're going to see is an 18-year-old black man who lost his brother by an off-duty white cop. She went into this gentleman's apartment. His brother was 26, abiding the law, watching football in his home. She went into the wrong apartment thinking it was hers, thinking that this guy's brother was breaking and entering. She shot and killed him. She went on trial and was convicted of murder and sentenced to 10 years in prison. We pick up the story at the trial where Brant Jean takes a stand to offer a, a victim impact testimony. <coughs> I don't want to... Say it twice or for the hundredth time what you or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I just I hope you 
go to God with all my all the guilt, all the things, the bad things you may have done in the past. Each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please? In view of God's mercies, commit to make peace. It's powerful. You can't do it apart from the mercy of Christ to you first. You got to make peace with God first. But when you understand what Jesus has done for you, how can you not move towards other people with the same kind of compassion and mercy in as much as it depends upon you? You're not always going to be at peace. I get that. Not everybody is going to respond how we want them to. But in as much as it depends upon you. Let us commit to making peace in view and empowered by the mercies of Jesus. For God's glory, for the sake of the gospel message, and as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all mankind. Let's pray. Father, your greatness is so far beyond us it leaves us speechless. Lord, it is reckless when we think about your love, the way you pursued your enemies, people who would crucify you. You put yourself in harm's way for their sakes. Your greatness and your goodness to us is it's ridiculous. Your mercies are so humbling. They are startling even. The way you repay evil with goodness the way you offer blessings to those who curse your name. Father, apart from you, we are hopeless. 
But because of your mercies to us in Christ, we have hope. You break into the darkness of our own hearts. You bring light. You promise to restore every heart that is broken. You promise to give us the resources to forgive, to be reconciled even to the ones we've been offended by most. May the way we live in view of your mercies bring praise to your name. May the way you empower us to pursue peace pour out praise and glory to the watching world of your greatness. Lord, we are weak when it comes to reconciliation. Would you be strong in our weakness? Be great when we're not. For your glory, for our joy, we ask in your name. Amen.